Welcome to Ominous Ones. I'm Tara. And I'm not Tara. What's new? With me or with our audience? Either way. Wasn't sure if we were going to banter on this one. Oh, yeah, we can. Absolutely. What's new? Mm, not much. I had um, a terrible start to the day, so I decided to quit working and come home. I was like, you know what? It's Sunday, and I don't feel like being here, and everything's getting messed up, so I'm going to just leave, and I'll try again tomorrow. Fair. You got to do that sometimes. Agreed. All right, well. What's new with you? Nothing. Just the podcast. Nice. My day didn't start out that bad, but I also didn't start out at work, so it's always a good thing. Agreed. Alright, well, this is going to be another older case, and it gets kind of graphic, but I try not to go into too much detail. Ready? Ready. The story starts on the night of June 9th, 1912 in Villisca, Iowa. For reference, it's around 100 miles southwest of Des Moines, Iowa. This was a very small town, and I think it had around 2,000 people calling at home around that time, so everyone knew everyone. Mary Catherine, who was 10, invited her friends, who were sisters, Ina May and Lena Gertrude Stillinger, who were 8 and 10 years old, to go to church with her family and then spend the night at her house. Ina and Lena's father was J.T. Stillinger, who was said to be a local rich farmer. The family went to the Presbyterian Church, where the kids were involved in a children's day program that the church had. Their mom, Sarah, was also involved in the activities and was active with the church along with her husband, Josiah. The program ended around 9.30 that night. One of the neighbors saw the Moore family and the two friends arrived to the Moore house around 9.45 or 10 o'clock that night. The next record is around 7 a.m. the next day, which was June 10th. One of the nearby neighbors, Mary Peckham, noticed that She did not see anyone moving around the house or the yard and thought that was strange because she usually saw them in the mornings walking around and doing yard chores and taking care of a bunch of animals that they had. She decided to go see if everyone was okay and knocked on the front and back door and even tried to open the doors, finding them locked. So when no one answered and she knew like she wasn't going to be able to get in if they didn't answer, She did the neighborly thing and let out their chickens and started on, like, the other daily chores that they had to do. You know what? Typically, I hate nosy neighbors. I have one, and I can't stand her, as you know. But I'm I'm the kind of person that's like, if I mind my own business, I would appreciate it if everybody around me would also mind their own business, at least that involves me. But, I mean, in this instance, at least she's taking care of their animals and went and checked on them so i guess they probably have a decent relationship and it didn't seem nosy like she wasn't there just trying to get information she was like oh like these chores need to be done animals need to be let out let me help them out i like that but i hate neighbors so anyways so the reports on this are weird but since it's so old it gets really mixed and i'm not sure really what happened But um, I also saw that Joe's clerk had called the house and got no answer. So Mary wasn't the only one concerned about the family at this point. Mary still didn't see anyone and was out of options and did the chores that she could. So 
and then she called Josiah's brother, Rossmore. She let him know the situation, and he came over to see if he could get in or figure out what was going on. While she was worried enough to call Josiah's brother, she did say that she had not heard any alarming noises coming from the house the night before. Ross went to the house with Mary. He also knocked and received no answer. He had a copy of their house key and used it to go inside while Mary waited out front. I think everyone could sense that whatever reason the family wasn't around wasn't going to be good and she probably didn't want to see whatever reason that was. Because I'm like, there's a lot of people in the house for no one to be up and answering the door or around. And then what time is this out again? By the time, does it say? It was. Brother gets there and whatnot? No, but Mary went over there at about seven. Knocked, didn't see anyone, started the chores, all that, and then called Ross, the brother, and then he had to get there, so. Yeah, and it's what, 1912? Yeah. So he was probably walking on horseback or something yeah so side note it is reported differently in some sources that joe's brother wasn't the first one to get in the house and it was actually the main cop in town or i think he was the town marshal named henry horton and some of the sources say that he showed up and broke into the house and he was the first one in but either way henry does go in and when he comes out of the house he says quote somebody was murdered in every bed unquote so, I mean, I know for a lot of people, 7 a.m. is, like, kind of early. But for people who have farms or farm animals or even people like me, that is, like, pretty late in the afternoon to get your day started. Yeah, I'm like, and back then, I think everybody was just up super early, like, the sun yeah. came up, everybody was up. Especially when you have farm animals, like, they need to be taken care of first thing in the morning, like, as the sun's rising. Yeah. If we go with the theory that Joe's brother, or Josiah's brother, went in first, this is kind of how it went down. Ross, the brother, went into the parlor part of their house and found the bodies of Lena and Ina. They were laying on the bed, and after seeing this, Ross went outside and told Mary to call the cops, or more specifically, to call Henry Horton, who I just mentioned. So, I'm not sure how any of that actually went down, like, the timeline, but then Henry does get there, and he rushed into the house, like I said, he broke in, or Ross was already inside, and then while they were searching, they found the bodies of the whole Moore family and the Stillinger sisters. It was concluded they were killed with an axe that belonged to the Moore family, and it was left in the same guest bedroom the Stillinger sisters' bodies were found in. Good lord, could you imagine being murdered by an axe in your sleep? Nope. That would be horrendous. That's like... That's rough. And there's a lot of them. Found dead were the Stillinger sisters, Ina and Lena, Mary Catherine... Herman Montgomery, who was 11, Arthur Boyd, who was 7, Paul Vernon, who was 5, Josiah, or Joe as some people called him, who was 43, and then Sarah, the wife, was 39. Good lord. And you know they had to start with, like, the kids, you would think, because it's gonna make noise, or no, probably the adults, they're gonna make noise, though, and they're gonna wake up. Especially if they're sharing a room, like the sisters or whatever, they're sharing a room because they're having a sleepover. So you know they weren't alone. 
I think it's weird that Mary didn't hear anything. It's only in 1912. It's not like I would assume the TV was on or like there's cars going by. Like back then, it seems like everything was just like quiet. dead silent. Yeah. But yeah, she didn't hear anything. I think it's odd that she would say that before anybody even entered the house. She's like, I didn't hear anything, so they should be fine. I don't know if she said that before or after. Oh. It was just mentioned that... That she said it. Before, like, Ross had gone in, she was, like, in her head, or I don't know, maybe she did say it then. I was like, I didn't hear anything. So, Henry brought with him Dr. J. Clark Cooper, Edgar Hugh, the minister of the church the family went to, and also there was Wesley Ewing, not sure what he did, Dr. F.S. Williams, an L.A. linguist who was local coroner. When stepping out of the house, the coroner told the crowd that had gathered around the house, quote, don't go in there, boys. You'll regret it until the last day of your life, unquote. Since this was 1912 and rules weren't really enforced, nobody listened. Which I'm like, people still don't listen, but I feel like we enforce it better now. We're like, that's a crime scene. Don't go in there. So the whole crowd went inside. So it was over 100. That's insane. Over 100 people ended up walking through the crime scene, and someone even allegedly took a piece of Josiah's skull. Who does that? Mm, bored people in 1912. They're like, oh, I'll be taking this. Dibs. I want this for later. This is going on the mantle. After autopsies were done, a doctor said the murders had happened between midnight and 5 a.m. the night before. They believe the killer went into the house through an unlocked back door, which was normal for the time back then, to just not lock your doors. I and mean, that's kind of normal for now still, even, like, out of my dad's it's house. It's not. That's yeah, but not, when you're... No, lock your doors. When you're a farmer in the middle of nowhere, and you know the whole neighborhood and the whole community, and it's, like, not a big community, like out in Yarrington, my dad's doors are hardly ever locked. I guess, but lock your doors. Tonopah, too? Always lock your doors. Even if you live in the middle of nowhere, somebody might come in with your axe and kill you. Yeah, with your own axe. So they thought he went in through, or whoever, I'm, nobody gets convicted, so we're not sure if it's a boy or a girl. Whoever it was, went in through an unlocked back door. And then that also was weird for Mary the next morning to find the doors locked. And she was like, we don't lock our doors. I think it is safe to say that we can assume that it was a man. That did this because women don't typically kill people with axes. Definitely, like, 90% sure it was a guy, but nobody gets convicted. So, who knows? The house keys were never found, so they assumed that the killer must have taken them with them after locking the doors. And two cigarette butts were found somewhere in the attic, so they thought that whoever killed everyone had been hiding up there, smoking, and waiting for everyone to go to bed. After patiently waiting, whoever this was decided it was quiet enough and everyone must be asleep, so they went down and started the attack. This person first went into the parents' room where Josiah and Sarah were asleep. They found that Josiah had been hit with the axe more than anyone, and he was hit so many times and so hard in the face that his eyes were missing, which I assume his oh head was God. pretty much nothing. Yeah. To be hit that hard that much i'm like that your eyes are gone yeah there was also evidence that the axe was swung up so hard it had left a hole in the ceiling from whoever was swinging it 
I'm not sure if that means that the house had low ceilings or if the killer was tall or what, but yeah, they were like, it was swung up so hard it left a hole. I found it reported that Josiah was the only one who was hit with the sharp part of the axe and the rest were killed with the blunt side. But Good then God. I saw it reported the other way around. But either way, when he was killed, it was opposite than the rest of them. The kids were the next victims. For It was Paul, Herman, Arthur, and Mary Catherine. Whoever did this went back to the parents' room and hit both Josiah and Sarah even more. And I found that Joe was hit with it no less than 30 times. Which, how could they conclude that? Because I'm like, like I said... There wouldn't be much left. How could you be like, mm, no less than 30 times. So he killed the parents. That's insane. Killed their kids. Went back and hit the parents even more. And then after that, like he... Just for good measure. I guess. And then after that, he went after the Stillinger sisters who were found first. Love of God. I would think that this would have been a loud attack because I doubt that the first hit on every person was the one that killed them. That was them. deadly, yeah. Especially if some of them were, like, the That's blunt... That's what I'm saying. And they're sharing rooms and stuff and now one person woke up and was, like, screaming, like, please stop. Especially at the blunt side. Right? I saw the timeline laid out in different versions, so I'm not 100% sure on, like, if it was parents, kids, parents... Dillinger sisters but I'm like either way it was all of them I also read that after everyone was dead the killer went back and continued to hit everyone with the axe until their heads were non-existent and if it weren't for the fact that everyone knew who was there and who lived there then they would have not been able to identify anybody but everyone just knew oh the whole family should have been home that night and then the two sisters were there it's the only reason they were identified god could you imagine like Letting your kids go spend the night at their friend's house and they get brutally murdered like that. I would never forgive myself. And that's like a normal thing, even today. You also like, can't know, though. Yeah, to let your kids, like, go spend the night at their friends or whatever. Like, I would... That's horrendous. The killer also covered all of the faces of the dead with random things around, like, sheets and t-shirts. This person also covered up every mirror in the house with more sheets and clothing and just anything they could find. Then the cops found that after the murders, whoever had done this had taken either a two pound or a four pound slab of bacon out of the freezer or the icebox and had left that lane next to the axe. Also leaving behind a keychain that everyone said didn't belong to anyone in the house. But I'm like, how do they know that if They're everyone... Like, I know, every single keychain that belongs in that house. If everyone in the immediate family is dead, I'm like, they can't be like, mm, that didn't belong to anybody. I'm like, you're not sure if somebody had just picked that up along their travels. The cops also found bloody water in a bowl like you would wash your hands in back then. And there was a plate of uneaten food left in the house. So I'm like, the bloody water makes sense to tie to the killer. But how do they know that someone didn't just fix a plate of food and then not eat it and just went to bed? Because they back. I mean, even now, a lot of people like clean up after they eat. Don't leave it out. But I'm like, you can't swear that the family was like that and it belonged to the killer. True. I'm like, kids are always like, "Oh, I'm hungry," and then don't eat anything. The killer had closed all of the curtains and hung aprons and shirts and random stuff over the windows so it would be really dark in there. 
They concluded that everyone was asleep during the attacks except Lena, who had signs that she had fought back. They also think she might have been molested or whoever did this tried to do that to her because her pajamas had been pushed up and she didn't have any underwear on. But in 1912, it wasn't like they could collect DNA or really know what to look for. So. Yeah, back then, everyone wore underwear. Yeah, so they're not sure. A reenactment of the crimes was put on by the coroner. They think that the killer took an oil lamp that was already in the house and either cut the wick in two or bent it and then lit it and put it under a chair or some type of furniture so it would be dark in there but they could see enough to like get around and be able to get everybody. This person also had to walk past sleeping rooms with sleep or past rooms with sleeping kids in them to get to the parents room first so I'm like whoever it was was absolutely like sneaking quietly around the house. Or everybody slept really hard. To viciously murder people. I sleep extremely hard, so... I know, I was yelling at you the other night. I'm like, the whole house could cave in around me, and I would not hear it and wake up. Fair. As long as, like, my body and bed are not disturbed, I wouldn't wake up. During the beginning of the search for the killer... They brought bloodhounds in from Nebraska to hopefully catch the scent of whoever did this, but it didn't go anywhere. There was a lot of suspects, but nobody ends up getting convicted. Well, and yeah, the bloodhounds definitely not going to be able to get anybody, considering a hundred people walked through the crime scene. True. Like, how did they think that was going to work? You just had a hundred people walk through this area. That dog's going to pick up on a hundred people's scent. And just go everywhere. Yeah, and be like, oh, okay, well, I'm not sure which one I'm supposed to smell for. First of the suspects was Reverend George Kelly, who was actually tried for the murders twice. The first ended in a hung jury, and the second ended with an acquittal. Kelly was a traveling minister and happened to be in town the night of the murders. He had a history of mental illness and went through a mental breakdown when he was little. He was also accused of peeping on girls and asking young women and girls to pose naked for him when he was older. He was in town that night to be at the children's day service. That was at the church the family had been at that night. And he left Villisca between 5 and 5.30 a.m. the morning that the bodies were found. He left by train and some people that had saw him on that train said he was telling everyone about eight people being murdered in Villisca and mentioned it happened when they were all in their beds. The problem with that is that the victims hadn't been found when he was on the train. Yeah, until like after nine o'clock at least. So if the timelines are accurate by like what everyone's saying and if he did leave town at that time, then I'm like, he, there's no way he should have known. Yeah, he did it for sure. He even confessed to committing the murders, but no one believed him. He also displayed an odd fixation on the murders and would write letters to the families of the deceased as well as the cops and other people investigating the murders. They didn't believe him because they were like, oh, he's crazy and has a history of mental illness. He doesn't know what he's saying. But they were also investigating it to be like, hmm, the train thing doesn't really make sense. But no, it wasn't him. Yeah, that, I, I haven't even heard the rest of the story and I'm sold it to him. A private investigator wrote letters back to Kelly to see if he would know facts that only the killer would know, and Kelly only responded with weird answers, like he might have watched the murders happen, or he might have heard them happen, but then when the private investigator took the letters to the cops, no one was sure if any of this was true, 
or if his history of mental illness was leading him to make up that he had been there or heard it or done it. Yeah, but if he's... I don't know. If the... He's on the train and is saying that stuff before anybody even finds them. I'm like, who cares about the letters? That's enough right there. You know? Well, it was all circumstantial because back then, yeah, not no much evidence-wise. Like so, no one believed him and he was out walking around for two years. And then in 1914, he was picked up by the cops for sending sexually harassing letters to a woman that applied to be his secretary. He was placed in a mental health place at St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, D.C. after that arrest. In 1917, the cops decided to arrest him for the Velisca murders and he confessed, but he had been interrogated for hours before this confession and it ended in an acquittal. I'm not sure if he confessed to the cops once or twice, but in one signed confession, he said that God had told him to, quote, suffer the children to come unto me. Unquote. Whatever that means. I was just going to ask you what that means. Not sure. He also later takes back this confession. He was the only person ever actually tried for the murders. And like I said, one was a hung jury and one was an acquittal. Henry Lee Moore, not related, was another suspect. And he was a suspected serial killer and had been arrested and convicted of killing his mom and grandma with an axe. These murders took place a few months after the Velisca murders. The murders were similar, so people were like, oh, maybe they're linked, but it didn't go anywhere. Frank F. Jones, who was actually an Iowa state senator, was the next suspect. Frank had been Josiah's boss at an implement store for a few years. Josiah had left the store to start his own and ended up taking business from Jones, including a John Deere account that was worth a lot of money. People also said that Josiah was having an affair with Frank's daughter-in-law, but there was no proof and people just rumored that Frank was responsible for the murders, but it wasn't like the cops ever looked at him. When the Frank F. Jones theory fell through, people rumored that he might have hired William Mansfield to commit the murders. William, or Blackie as he was known, was a suspect in other axe murder situations. Nine months earlier, there was How one... How often are axe murders happening, happening there? All the time. <laughs> That's at least the third or fourth one that's brought up here? Mm-hmm. Like, no. good lord. You guys have nothing else to kill with? Everyone just had axes laying around. It was convenient. I mean, I guess, but... Nine months earlier, there was an axe murder in Colorado, followed by axe murders in Ellsworth, Kansas, and... Paola, Kansas? I'm saying that wrong, but I don't know how to say it right. They also thought for a minute that this person was responsible for the Axeman murders in New Orleans, but they never found any actual evidence to link them. Josiah's brother-in-law, Sam Moyer, was also a suspect because people said that he was threatening to kill Josiah all the time, but he alibied out of it. Paul Mueller, who people think was a serial killer, was also a suspect for the murders and he was thought to have killed a family in Massachusetts I'm and was assuming with an axe probably and was on the run from for that for a year Bill James and his daughter Rachel McCarthy James wrote a book in 2017 called The Man from the Train about this possible serial killer and they think that he killed 59 people in 14 different attacks and it would have included the Velisca axe murders 
and the two attacks that Williams Mansfield was thought to have committed in Colorado and Paola. But again, there was no evidence, so it didn't go anywhere. A Tribune reporter said, quote, The slaying of the entire family promises to become a mystery, which will take much time to unravel, unquote. Which, I'm like, is accurate, because it's 2022, and we still don't know who committed the murders. So it's already been over 100 years. You can actually still go visit the Velisca Axe Murder House for tours, and you can even spend the night there. That's sketchy. Yep. I mean, I would do it, but... I'd spend the night. I want to go to Lizzie Borden's house and spend the night, too. Can you? Yeah. And do tours and spend the night there. That's awesome. Have you seen that... This is completely unrelated, but have you seen that guy that, like... You pay him, and then he, like, tortures you until you tap out, I guess. Like... The haunted house? Is that what it is? Is it... There's he, there's a haunted house that you have to sign waivers for. Yeah. And if you make it through the entire night, you get, like, ten grand, and nobody's yeah, ever made it no through. no one's made it. Yeah. Yeah. That is so intriguing to me. I would never do it, because you have to tell me your fears, and I'm not messing around with the dark or spiders and getting tortured that way. So your torture would be easy. Yeah. I'm like, mm-hmm. Just put you in a dark room with some spiders. And I Done. Would, I'd pass out for sure. We just announced to the world your biggest fears, so have fun with that one. <laughs> well, that was the Velisca Axe Murders. Thanks for listening. If you like this, don't forget to like and subscribe. Have a good day. Bye. Bye.